everybody. So this is going to be a little different. So this is probably, no, it is the first time I've recorded the podcast without eyes on Paul in some sort of way. And so we'll see how this goes. So if you've been Playing along with the podcast, you probably know that Paul had a cardiac bypass surgery on June 12th. And so I am recording this today, June 27th for release on June 28th, because we are back in our weekly flow with the podcast. But today I'm recording by myself as a way of trying to give just a little bit more space for our friend Paul to rest up and take care of himself. And it's kind of appropriate that I'm recording by myself so that Paul can tend to himself on an episode that we knew would be a discussion of empathy. So before I get into it, I just I want to talk about the fact that this episode to me feels a little bit like the Zen koan of like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? This is the episode of what is the sound of one podcaster podcasting? So in a lot of ways, even just going into and recording this feels really weird to me, not because I can't talk for long periods of time and expect people to be fascinated with what I had to say, but most just because there's something that comes from sort of the the in the what do I want to say the intentionality or just I don't know the creative process of when two brains come together and aren't afraid to just play and see what what emerges. So what I also know is that Paul and I now have been working together <clears throat> for so long, not epically long, but for quite a long time to where a lot of times now when I go back and read things that we've written, I actually find myself struggling a little bit to remember who wrote which sentence. And so my hope is over the course of this episode, which I will walk through some of the some content that Paul and I wrote together. But my hope is that even though I'll be using my Sherry voice, you will hear plenty of Paul in this episode because... Yeah, this is the Paul and Sherry show forever. So so I'm going to speak a little bit about the subject of empathy and what happened when we put together a workshop. I guess it would have been sometime in the fall semester last year. We were moving through our series. And if you go back a couple of episodes, you can kind of catch the drift of what those episodes have been about. So we thought about what it meant to pause, to reflect, to discover. And even over the course of the summer, it's interesting how we're learning new things about pausing discovery, reflection, all as we're going through. But then from there, we move into a workbook on the subject of empathy that I think really put us on a road. And one of the reasons I say that is because all through this workbook, we use a metaphor of basically car travel to talk through what we eventually come to call the compassion turnpike. And so the compassion turnpike becomes a metaphor for how we can work towards reaching a place of empathy, how we sometimes have to move away from places of empathy and move towards indifference. And there's some reasons for that. And so We'll, we'll use a lot of travel metaphors, which has kind of become a thing we do. So we have our parking lot reflection and things of that nature. But where we start with our metaphor and our treatment of empathy is actually with this concept of what we call the meta merge. And if you've heard Paul talk about meta before, you know, it's this concept of loving kindness. And, you know, this comes from the poly word. And it's one of the 
the four divine abodes, which we've taught a class about before. But one thing that's become really interesting to me is that Metta has really become a way of being that we can choose to live within the life that we're leaving. And so part of what we have to choose is to merge onto this whole way of being in the world that is compassion and loving kindness. We aren't... We're not set up within a world where kindness and love is really the way of being for a lot of people. You know, things like capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, all of these things are kind of set out to protect the survival of few instead of extend space for love and compassion to all. So part of what we have to understand is that if we're going to really live a life of empathy, it's going to require us to merge sort of away from a previous way of being and onto a highway that's probably going to look a lot different from what we're used to. So we're going to have to get off the back roads we know and merge into this different way of being. And so the meta merge, the loving kindness is a tool that we have to start with. And there's you could probably spend a year just focused on, well, what does it mean to live a life that's led by Meta? And I think every single day, all of us have to sort of wake up and ask what that's going to look like for us. What is it going to look like to live in the world today as a person who chooses loving kindness from the first decisions they make and how they greet their spouse or their loved ones at home, their cat, their dog, whatever, all the way down to how do you react to that driver in front of you who's driving you crazy. So metta is sort of an intentional practice that we think is the foundation for empathy. This idea of coming to loving kindness first and foremost. So if we start with that idea of the meta merge, then we're able to then move on to the compassion turnpike. And so we talk about the fact that if you're going to try to move on to this turnpike, if you're going to try and work towards empathy, you kind of have to accept the fact that you have to go through compassion. And if you've hung around with Paul and me any period of time, you understand that compassion is suffering together. And the compassion toll booth, it's a toll booth. It takes a toll. So loving kindness, compassion, you know, empathy, all of these sound like really pleasant words, but they're hard work and they, you pay a price when you live a life of compassion because you have to be willing to show up for discomfort. You have to be willing to show up for suffering your own and others. And it, it's not awesome, right? And sometimes it feels like the, the toll fees that you're paying are really quite expensive. Sometimes you wonder, like, even though you've got the easy pass, maybe it feels like you feel like you, you've taken all the struggle out. You've done all the work to try to make compassion just like a natural part of your life. But it doesn't matter. The toll of compassion still adds up. And so this is why Paul and I have a video that we made that was about compassion fatigue, because if you're living a life of compassion, of loving kindness, you are inevitably going to notice that it takes a toll on you. And so there are times because of that, that we don't have the resources in us to move towards empathy. Sometimes in those times, we have to move a different direction. And so this is why we use this metaphor of a turnpike to talk about moving towards empathy 
or away from empathy, which is towards indifference. Now, you know, sometimes people will say, you know, the, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference, right? Like indifference is pictured as being this really kind of negative concept. And, you know, we don't want to be indifferent towards all things and all manners all the time. But there are times where turning the car around and allowing yourself to work towards indifference for a period of time is the most compassionate thing for you to do for yourself, for others in the situation, because life gets really tricky and it gets really challenging. And it's really easy to feel like you're totally turned around on the turnpike of life. So we, we like the idea of knowing that there are a lot of stops along the way from empathy to indifference. Just like, you know, when I'm on, you know, 95, that the 95 interstate around here, I live in Alexandria, Virginia, you know, a lot of times the sign I'm getting on is telling me that I'm either headed towards, you know, Richmond or Tyson's Corner. And I'll tell you, there are very few times that I go to either of those locations, but I have to, I have to choose a direction and I have to hop on it in order to get to where it, I am meant to be for the day. And so, The same is true with empathy and compassion and indifference. So, you know, what we have to do is move through a period of compassion with ourselves and with others in the situation to explore what's really possible. And another thing that we can do as we sort of explore these ideas of, you know, the the traffic metaphor for compassion and empathy, we can also... think a little bit about minding our own car. (laughs) In our workbook, we talk about paying attention to your own gauges. And so, you know, just like on your dashboard, you have a variety of different gauges that you're taking a look at. You've got your gas, you've got your, you know, your oil, you've got, I don't know, I'm not really a car person. Despite all the car metaphors we use in our own human bodies, we also have gauges. So we have the cognitive gauge, which is, you know, what are we thinking? We have the somatic gauge, which is what are the sensations within our bodies? And we have the affective gauge, which is, you know, what are we feeling? And this is kind of related to an early episode that Paul and I did on the rates of things. And what we were noticing at that time when we were recording was that the way that your head processes something, the heart processes something, and, you know, your your body processes something, it, it all happens at different sort of rates. And so the metaphor that we've now come to, we start thinking about this as they're separate gauges because they're monitoring different tanks. And so one of the things that we're going to have to do, if we're even going to think about, you know, getting on the compassion turnpike and steering our way towards a place of empathy, one of the first things that we have to do is figure out where are we at with our own gauges. And so, you know, first that check-in, you know, honestly, I, it's weird because I used to check in with my body last and I've really come to realize that the body sort of is a tyrant in a way. If we're not paying attention to it, it will get our attention and sometimes by some, some dire methods. So the first thing is to really pay attention to the, the somatic sensations within us. And, you know, if we're not sleeping, if we're not eating, it's going to be really hard for us to show up on the um, at, at an empathy destination. And sometimes we have control over this. <clears throat> and other times we don't have as much control as we might like. So I know over the last couple of weeks, you know, might not surprise you. I've been a little bit nervous about a good friend of mine who had some recent surgery, right? And so one of the things that I noticed is that I found it really challenging to sleep. I also went through a period where 
food wasn't feeling all that appetizing to me. And so those were real sort of embodied experiences that I tried to navigate as best I could. But the body tank had a lot to say. And so because of that, I had to be really careful about where and how I was showing up, because if those tanks go out, my ability to to really show up within alignment with my own values becomes really, really impacted. And so so that's the first tank that we think about is that somatic one. And then I think it's for me, I like to then move to the affective domain and try to figure out what am I actually thinking or sorry, not thinking, feeling. We'll get to those thoughts. What am I actually feeling? And this one's hard because a lot of times I think we we get really hung up on how we think we should be feeling right. Like we have all these narratives about what the ideal human in our situation would do and how they would be and how they would feel and what they would like and what would they not like. but. That's kind of like with our cars, right? Like in ideal situation, the car would never, never overheat. The car shouldn't overheat. But there are reasons that the car might actually overheat. And you can't just yell at your car and say, you shouldn't be feeling this way. You should feel cool. Be cool, car, because it just doesn't work that way. So instead, we kind of have to to actually take a, a kind of honest inventory of like, OK, what's under the hood? What's happening? And so feelings show up and you've probably heard us talk about those feelings help us to figure out what do we actually need? What needs to go into the tank to cool us off or what have you? So that's our second gauge that we're going to pay attention to. And then the gauge that's a little less trustworthy, in my opinion, is the thoughts. It's taken me a really long time to learn that I don't have to believe everything I think. And for me, who navigates some some challenges specifically related to OCD, just because things come up in my head doesn't mean that they're true. And so I think about the fact that sometimes our bodies, our brains give us the best feedback they can to be able to communicate what's happening within us the best they can. But not always is the light on the dashboard that's going off actually reflective of the problem. Right. And so we have, for example, in our cars, the check engine light. Well, the check engine light Like that's a pretty big general light to go off for a whole host of little problems. And so our thoughts kind of can do the same thing. So we can tell ourselves a story because we're trying to alert ourselves to something about our environment and, and trying to problem solve and create a cohesive narrative that helps us to navigate the situation we're in. But unfortunately, our brains can sometimes be really good fiction writers. So I think for me, playing with the somatic experience of what's happening in my body, what am I feeling? And then seeing my thoughts through the lens of those two things helps me to really have a better sense of my overall state. And once I'm able to kind of get through those, then I can make some decisions about whether or not today's a travel day for me at all. And there are times where the only stop on the compassion turnpike that I'm able to make is one of a stop off in self-empathy. And it took me a really long time to really even allow myself self-empathy. In my mind, self-empathy seems like I'm coddling myself. And I resisted that. I know a lot of people that resist like, oh, I can't nurture myself. I have to, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and all this kind of stuff. And so it's really common, I think, for us to sort of have this normalized behavior where we talk total shit to ourselves 
And then we say the kindest things to other people. And I think I've been guilty of that for a really long time. The idea of even having needs and having someone notice that I'm not completely and totally robotically in control of everything that's happening within me at all times, like is, is terrifying. I don't want anyone to think that I ever am anything but perfect. And yet a lot of times I just kind of feel like a mess. Right. And so I think where I really want to camp out for the rest of this episode is just on why self-empathy in particular is such a hard practice for me personally. And then I'll be really curious to hear how self-empathy shows up for others. So one of the ways that I like to think about empathy is to kind of make it, you know, sort of specific in terms of, well, what is it that we're actually talking about? Compassion, empathy, indifference, all of these are these terms that we throw around a lot. I think we're all expected to know what they mean, especially, you know, Paul and I use these terms all the time. But then when you, the closer you look at them, the fuzzier they can actually become. So the thing that helps me really understand empathy is really seeing it through the lens of empathetic guessing, which is kind of an idea that you take a look at a situation that somebody's navigating and knowing how humans operate and what the truth of human experience looks like and the available feelings for a human. You kind of make a guess for what it is that they might be feeling given the situation. And as a result of that feeling, what the underlying need might be within them. And once you're able to do that, that's when you're able to connect in with empathy. For me, empathy is an understanding that humans are, well, all beings are really just doing their best to get their needs met. And when unmet needs really show up, they can be incredibly distressing, especially if we don't have good strategies or preferred strategies for navigating those needs. So, you know, we can think about this as, okay, so, you know, you're feeling, I don't know, you know, something happens and you're feeling a little bit frustrated, right? And so there's a lot of associated feelings that you could have with frustration. It's a little bit harder, I think, when I try to turn this on myself, because The story that I tell myself a lot of the time is that the only feeling that I should have is happiness, 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 happiness all the time, all the time. And the reason for that is pretty complicated, but I think ultimately I don't want to be a burden to other people. And I also know that if in the grand scheme of things, my life is full of privilege and I could break that down, you know, looking at the fact that, you know, I'm a cisgendered white woman married to a cisgendered, gendered, not gendered, (laughs) gendered white man. I live in an affluent city within the United States of America. I have three degrees. I, you know, have access to resources that a lot of people are denied. And I know that's to be true. I also know that my life hasn't been perfect and easy. I also know that a lot of my demographic unearned privilege is one of the reasons my life isn't harder than it is. So life is really complicated. And so as I look at where I am and what I have, I tell myself that there's absolutely no reason for me to ever feel any feeling except for happiness and gratitude and joy. 
And yet that's just not possible because, (laughs) because have you lived life, right? Life can be really complicated and painful. And so even, you know, in easier times, there are human frustrations that we all face. And some of them for me are related to my mental health challenges. And so Sometimes, even though there might be nothing that is external to me that is obviously wrong, the war within me is so violent that it's really hard to keep keep going as though everything's just perfect and easy. And so within these moments, these are the moments when empathy is so hard for myself because the story I want to tell myself is you're fine, right? Like there are literally no cheetahs chasing you. You have all the food you need. And yet, and yet there's a lot that I'm contending with. So part of what self-empathy looks like for me is coming to a place where I can allow myself to be with my feelings, whatever they are, as they are, and without judgment. And that without judgment piece is really challenging. I've spent a lot of my life where I don't believe I should feel the way I feel. And so I will tell myself stories like, If this morning I don't feel like getting out of bed and, you know, running a 5K and cleaning the kitchen and writing the great American novel and whatever, 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 if I am not embracing that level of productivity, I will tell myself that I am lazy. And so rather than offer myself compassion and say, you know, hey there, kiddo, I hear that, you know, you're not feeling a big product productive day. You know, I'm wondering what's happening in you. I'm wondering if there's something I can do to help. You know, the kinds of things I would say to a friend. Instead, I go straight to the narrative of you obviously are a lazy piece of crap, right? And so instead, I have to try to get okay with the idea of sort of coddling myself. And this is where some of the strategies that I use to work through my OCD tendencies can sometimes help with this. Because one of the things that I have learned to do to sort of challenge some of those challenges, the OCD issues, is to live in the place of uncertainty. And so sometimes the narrative of OCD will tell me something might be true, Like maybe this happened, maybe this is going to happen. And one of the ways that I sort of work with that idea is to live in this space of, well, maybe, maybe not. And there's actually a fish song that I listen to that helps sort of circulate this idea in my head. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe not. So I try to live within that sort of uncertainty. And so I try to apply that also to what it feels like to struggle with this idea that I'm coddling myself. Well, maybe I am. Maybe this is coddling. Hmm. It could be. That could be coddling. Oh, well. But what's the worst that can happen if I coddle myself just a little bit in this moment? And when I take that down and and really look at it, I look at what's going to happen if I take this moment and I coddle myself and I just kind of nurture and baby myself versus what's going to happen if I bully myself. And, you know, I used to really believe in this idea of, you know, tough love and that's, that's what pushes us along and all that kind of stuff. And I've realized that when I nurture myself in that way, 
I create a lot of trauma in me and I actually create a lot of anxiety within me. And so I try to come to it in a different way. My father recently was sharing with me that he had this realization. I think somebody told him that constructive criticism is still criticism. And that resonates with me a lot, right? A lot of times I think I'm giving myself exactly that. This is constructive criticism. I will be better for it. Except it's not. A lot of times what I end up with, if I allow myself to to do that tough love push along, all I just end up with is more insecurity. And what I really need for myself a lot of times is the biggest freaking cheerleading section. I need to be my biggest fan. So Paul and I have talked for a long time about finding, you know, your team, the people that are hashtag team you. And I've worked really hard on that. And I have a really incredible team of amazing humans who support me and who have walked alongside me for a lot of years. Um, But what I realized was that the the general manager of the team was kind of sabotaging. It's a little bit like the first season of Ted Lasso, if you've seen that. And so I kind of realized that the number one person I needed to get on my team was me. And so the more I work on really trying to check in with Sherry and ask, Hey, what's going on in you today? What are, you know, where are you getting hung up? You know, where do you need help? Where can you ask for some assistance? Where do you just need to back up and stop? I, I don't pride myself in being a particularly good listener. Some of my friends say that I have the capacity, but a lot of times I don't always hear it in myself. I hear myself talking a lot. I think that's one of the reasons I like the podcast is I can actually listen through and find evidence that I've paused long enough to listen to Paul, but I don't always slow down enough to really listen and stay curious. And I think that's a really big part of self-empathy is figuring out how do you slow down and really listen to what you're telling yourself. And in particular, choose the kinds of narratives you're willing to hear from yourself. And I don't think I get it perfectly all the time. In fact, I know I don't. It's still a struggle for me. But I think that's why empathy really is a practice. And I have to intentionally move through the place of compassion in order to start working through to empathy. So one of the things I had to realize is that you have to get to this place of that meta merge. You have to choose the loving kindness and remember that loving kindness means you too. And then you have to move through the compassion toll booth. And one of the hardest things about that, I think, especially for myself, is that compassion means suffering together. And so that even means facing and sitting with our own suffering And sometimes that shit is hard. I can name so many strategies that I've used over the years to try to not sit with my own suffering, to try to not sit with the suffering of other people. Because I think I've always thought that if I just allowed myself to sit and be with the suffering that's really, truly within me, I think I really honestly thought that it would overtake me. And that I would never be able to do anything but just feel the depths of my sorrow. And it turns out that most of the time the pain just wants to be seen. And that once I shine the light on it and really sit with it and take a look at what it is and identify it and name it, then I can rely on 
all the properties of Team Sherry to try to figure out the way through. But if I'm not willing to pay the toll and to face the suffering, then I can never get to the place of empathy. And so I think I've learned way more about what empathy means by having to try to offer it to myself than I think I ever learned trying to offer it to other people. In fact, for me, who has a little bit of a people pleasing tendency, being empathetic to others was actually a tool that I used to deny myself self-empathy. So I would try to anticipate the needs of everyone else in my life with such clarity and with such precision that I would never stop long enough to pay attention to what I needed. And the idea of doing so just felt so indulgent and something in me would always tell me that it was just dumb. But the more that I I do that, the more that I realize that I too deserve empathy and that sometimes I can't show up for other people as, as well as I'd like if I haven't first really taken some time to ask myself what's going on with you and to really hear my feelings exactly as they are, no shoulds, and then try to work through, well, what do we actually need? And once I get to that place of what do I need, you know, sometimes the answers are hard, you know, Sometimes I discover that I am walking through a season of grief and what I really need is mourning. And so that stinks because it tells you the only way through this might involve tears. (laughs) And that's no fun, right? Sometimes I move through a period of worry and I think that I need control and certainty. And then I remember that those aren't actually human needs, And so then I realized that this is an opportunity again for me to work on cultivating trust and faith, which are so much easier to talk about than they are to really live out. So it's hard work, this self-empathy stuff, but I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, it helps to have a, a good team of people walking the road with you who are also doing the best they can to be kind to themselves and to one another and to just live out meta in this world. And so I think that's what I have to share with you today about empathy and where we're at. And I am going to see what happens with our dear Dr. Fitzgerald and his time of recovery. And when he starts to feel like he's got some words back in him to rejoin us. But I hope that I've given you a couple of cool things to think about today. And I'm sure you all miss Paul's voice in this space as much as I do. And I look forward to chatting with him again here very soon. Thanks for listening. And we will catch with you soon. Bye.